Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Wednesday, December the 1st, a new month here on the Guy Benson Show in 2021. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Guy Benson political editor at townhall.com and a Fox News contributor. Catch me on the panel tonight on Special Report with Brett Baer. That's in the 6 p.m. hour Eastern time. Hope to see you there, Fox News Channel. Our website on the radio show side is GuyBensonShow.com. Easy to remember. GuyBensonShow.com. All of your needs related to the program right there, including the free podcast every single day on demand. We've got a big lineup for you today. Shannon Bream, will join us later this hour, a potentially momentous day at the Supreme Court, arguments taking place before the nine justices over a Mississippi abortion law. And reading the tea leaves, it looks like that abortion restriction is very likely to be upheld by the court. What are the broader implications on abortion jurisprudence? What did we learn today? We will ask Shannon about all of that. She is an expert on this stuff. Also coming up in the next hour on the program, Congressman Kevin Brady, Republican of Texas. He'll be here talking about all sorts of different things, mostly related to the economy. Looking forward to catching up with uh, Congressman Brady. Also in our middle hour, Jeff Passan from ESPN, their MLB insider. It has been a wild ride for Major League Baseball these last few days. There's a deadline looming on a potential lockout between management and players That deadline is, what, nine hours from now? And a lot of the expectation is that a lockdown or a lockout, rather, lockdown is on the mind because of this new variant. We'll get to that in a second. But the lockout in Major League Baseball is looking quite likely at this stage. What does that mean? And also some huge moves being made by various teams with free agent signings. We will get the latest from Jeff Passan of ESPN. And in our final hour today, Carl Rove. I want him to evaluate the Biden presidency so far and some of the jockeying that's already happening on the Democratic side of the aisle ahead of 2024. What does he make of that? Carl Rove joining us in our happy hour on the show today. Fox News alert as we begin. Let's bring you the stats on covid. The total case count officially in the United States, 48.5 million. The real number is a lot higher. And what's new just within the last hour or two, is that at least one of those cases is now confirmed to be the Omicron variant. It is here in the United States. It was discovered in California. I have a few more thoughts on that coming up here in just a moment. The death toll with or of COVID inside the United States over the last 20 months, 780,843. The Dow is down 46 points right now at 34,000, 
433. It was up earlier, but once again, a new piece of news. Omicron's here. People are very concerned about it. And I am going to begin by once again urging caution on this. Did I not say, what was it, on Monday's show, that it is almost certain that Omicron is in the United States and has been in the United States. That was not necessarily a commentary against the travel ban, although there were some questions asked at the White House today, like, hey, there are no known cases of this variant in some of these countries. How are you justifying you know, the Mozambique travel ban? And Fauci was like, uh, that's a good question. I'd like a better answer than that, certainly. But I understand if you've got a hot spot or a ground zero of a new variant limiting travel or barring travel from that area till we figure out more of what's happening, I don't think that's necessarily a bad idea. Right? Many on the left call it xenophobic when Trump did it. Now they're defending it because Biden's done it. But more importantly, it's not going to be bulletproof. It's not going to be foolproof. We believe that this variant has been circulating for quite some time. In South Africa and Southern Africa generally, people travel. We're in a globalized economy. People travel all over the place. So to me, the notion that it wasn't already here was naive, and I was just kind of waiting for this news to break, and so it did today. Fox News has confirmed that CDC identified the first known case of the Omicron COVID-19 variant. It was in San Francisco. The San Francisco Department of Health did confirm that a recent case of COVID-19 was found in an individual in Northern California caused by the Omicron variant, which is B11529. The CDC explaining that this particular individual was a traveler who returned to Northern California from South Africa on November 22nd, which was over a week ago, of course. So if you have one person who's been here for more than a week who's got it, there are more people who have this variant. That's not a surprise. It should not be a freakout. And as we've been saying now for the last couple of days, I'm not sure that there is really any justification for the extent of some of the panicking that we've seen. And as Howie Kurtz mentioned yesterday here on the show, the volume of the coverage and some of the tone of this coverage. I will again turn our collective attention to the words of a doctor, a prominent doctor in South Africa, Dr. Angelique Coetzee. We played a clip from her on the air yesterday. She now has an op-ed that she's written. She writes, as chair of the South African Medical Association and a general practitioner of 33 years standing, I have seen a lot over my medical career, but nothing has prepared me for the extraordinary global reaction that met my announcement this week that I had seen a young man in my surgery who had a case of COVID that turned out to be the Omicron variant. She goes on to criticize some of the foreign governments, including in the UK, for going way overboard in their response. She says, quote, in South Africa, we've retained a sense of perspective. 
basically wait and see. She goes on, here in South Africa, what I and my GP colleagues are seeing does not in any way warrant the knee-jerk reaction we've seen from the U.K., and she's talking about the U.K. and others. For one thing, we're not, at least now, treating patients who are severely ill, and she notes that this variant has been circulating on the continent for weeks at this point, at least. She said, take my first Omicron case, the young man I mentioned earlier. It didn't occur to him that he had COVID. He thought he had too much sun after working outside. After he tested positive, so did his wife and four-month-old baby. So far, the patients who've tested positive for this variant here have been mainly young men, a mixture of vaccinated and unvaccinated. Only yesterday, she writes, I saw five more patients who had tested positive for the new variant. They all had a very mild illness. So I keep coming back to the big three questions that I started asking as soon as I heard about the new variant last week. Is it more transmissible? Is it more virulent? Do the vaccines work against it? A few days later, the answers remain, we're not sure on all three counts, but it looks like it might, might be more transmissible, but that is not confirmed. It does not look like it is more virulent based on the initial data that we're getting, and we're getting more and more of it, right? The red flags that you keep bracing for, just sort of wincing, waiting for that shoe to drop based on some of this coverage, well, the shoe hasn't dropped. Or when the shoe dropped, it was light as a feather because it looks, at least for now, knock on wood, like the early indication is that it is not more virulent and, in fact, maybe less virulent. And we don't know about the vaccines yet, but the consensus emerging seems to be that the vaccines that we have will be effective, at least to a significant degree, in protecting people against severe cases or death caused by Omicron. That's the summary for now. And I get it. I'm not saying it's not a newsworthy event that it's been discovered in the United States. Oh, it's in California. Fine. We can take a breath, we can synthesize that information, and we don't have to lose our minds. I will note, by the way, that San Francisco just happens to be the city where a certain mayor, London Breed, is presiding. Did you hear about this? Remember how she had uh, been caught, maskless, partying in a nightclub? What was that, a few months ago? She had this amazing response because she was flouting her own guidance, right? She had imposed all these restrictions. Many of them are still in place. And at the time, she said she was just feeling the spirit. You don't need any fun police. Get out of here with your fun police. I was feeling the spirit. Relax. Hilarious. But also infuriating because those are her rules that other people have to abide by, including businesses who have been struggling. But that was her excuse. Stop being the fun police, even though she was the fun police. It was her series of edicts that she herself was ignoring which we see a lot, Gavin Newsom, Mayor Bowser, the list goes on, Nancy Pelosi. Well, she was apparently caught again at another nightclub on camera partying without a mask on. She said, well, you know, I didn't break any of the rules. And other people saying, yes, you did. Here's the photo. I guess the spirit was back for Mayor Breed. And now we have Omicron. 
Is Mayor Breed directly responsible for Omicron coming to San Francisco? These are the types of hysterical questions that might be asked about her if she were a Republican. And of course, there's no basis for that. And I don't really have a problem with her as a fully vaccinated person having a fun time and partying indoors without a mask on. I don't care. She seems to uh, enjoy the nightlife. The problem is if you have rules that you put on other people that they're expected to live by when you have no intention of altering your own life or your own experience to follow your own rules. That's obviously part of the issue here. Just an interesting little coincidence involving San Francisco. Actually, Gavin Newsom, right? That was the Bay Area. The French Laundry, Nancy Pelosi, her salon, Bay Area. A lot of this hypocrisy. We have a hot spot. We have a hypocrisy hot spot in Northern California from these left wing San Francisco area Democrats. Coincidental, but still sort of delicious in its own way. Meanwhile, we have this and I want to read this to you from The Washington Post. I think this is a trial balloon being floated by the Biden administration, that they are thinking about imposing new travel restrictions for Americans returning to the U.S. To me, this is crazy. Maybe, you know, Saki leaked this saying, hey, print this. We're thinking about it. Let's see how folks react. Let me just read to you from The Washington Post. As part of an enhanced winter COVID strategy, Biden plans to announce on Thursday, so that would be tomorrow, U.S. officials will require everyone entering the country to be tested one day before boarding flights, regardless of their vaccination status or country of departure. Administration officials are also considering a requirement that all travelers get retested within three to five days of arrival. So even if you're fully vaccinated and boosted and you test negative before you arrive, you might have to go get tested again. But it gets worse. From the Washington Post. In addition, and this is not set in stone yet, as you can hear from the phrasing. In addition, they are debating a controversial proposal to require all travelers, including U.S. citizens, to self-quarantine for seven days, even if their test results are negative. Those who flout the requirements could be subject to fines and penalties. The first time such penalties would be linked to testing and quarantine measures for travelers in the United States. That is bonkers. We are moving towards an endemic virus. We have to live our lives. Omicron is not a good reason to uproot the progress that we've made. We have to get back to normal. This is going in the opposite direction. They are getting more restrictive than they have been even before we had vaccines in some ways. It's crazy. If you're an American abroad, a U.S. citizen, you want to come home, you have to test negative, then get on the plane. Even if you're fully vaccinated, you got to test again. And even if you're negative, you have to then quarantine for seven days. Nope, this is a backsliding that is just not acceptable. I hope this is a trial balloon that gets shot down as opposed to policy that's going to be announced tomorrow by the president. We'll see. We'll see if he decides to use the new variant as the excuse for this, even though there's no proof that that would be necessary or that this new strain or the new variant is more dangerous. I'm going to get worked up. I I cannot, I can't handle moving back in this direction further. 
fingers crossed that this thing goes down in flames and it never gets announced. And that it's just a, an internal debate that leaked out. We'll see. We are just getting started. When we come back, there's a soundbite or a quote from a senior Democratic strategist that, again, I think is an insight into how a lot of leftists are feeling about things. And I don't think it's fair to make it left or right specific, but the Democratic Party is very invested in restrictions and mandates. And I will tell you what this strategist said as soon as we come back. Much to come today. Shannon Bream, Congressman Brady, a baseball update from ESPN's Jeff Pass and Carl Rove with a 50,000 look at American uh, 50,000 foot look at American politics just loaded up on the Guy Benson show. Stay tuned, we are just getting started. Guy Benson will be right back. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back to The Guy Benson Show. I promised you this quote from Patty Solis Doyle, who's a top Democratic strategist, worked for Hillary, worked for Obama. She was quoting the Washington Post talking about COVID. She said, quote, we're never going to go back to normal. Personally, I don't think I will ever get on a plane without wearing a mask. Well, that sounds awful. If the Democrats are going to run on anything remotely close to that message, they will get swamped. We have to get back to normal. In fact, that was the whole reason Joe Biden won. A return to normalcy. We're going to end the virus, crush the virus, and have a more normal time. How's that going? Meanwhile, we are watching a few other stories developing out of Michigan. We told you yesterday about that horrible school shooting. A fourth teenager has now died from wounds inflicted at that shooting yesterday. So now four dead. The suspect is in custody, and there's a press conference underway right now in Pontiac, Michigan, that we are following. And another breaking story out of Georgia, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is reporting that Stacey Abrams, the election truther and conspiracy theorist, is officially running for governor in 2022. She wants a rematch, apparently, against Governor Kemp, And that state, Georgia, has become, in some ways, ground zero for our political battles in this country. Extremely closely divided. That race, I would have to say... Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Roe. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. It's probably a toss-up. Stacey Abrams is in, just in case Georgia was not hot enough politically already. The Guy Benson Show continues. Shannon Bream coming up on SCOTUS. That's next.
Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. It is a very busy news day on the Guy Benson Show on this Wednesday. Thank you for listening. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday, GuyBensonShow.com. Our podcast is free. One of the news stories driving the day are the oral arguments that wrapped up earlier at the Supreme Court on an abortion case out of Mississippi, the Dobbs case. And people are, with great interest, parsing what was said by all of the justices trying to divine what this ultimate ruling might be months from now. And I cannot think of anyone I would rather speak to about this than our next guest, Shannon Bream, chief legal correspondent at Fox News, also anchor of Fox News at night, weekdays at midnight. Her podcast is Live in the Bream. She's also the best-selling author of The Women of the Bible Speak, and she is a veteran court watcher who understands these issues on a very deep level. And Shannon, it's great to have you back. Thanks for making some time for us on, I know, a day that is a big one for you as you're covering this huge story. Well, Guy, it's always a privilege to be with you. I want to start with a big-picture question, which is my understanding as a non-expert court watcher, right, I'm sort of an amateur, is that they've told us for so long never draw conclusions from oral arguments, right, because you never quite know if a justice is just – You know, test driving an argument, you don't really know if that's going to reflect the final decision. And yet, today, watching the coverage of the oral arguments in the Mississippi abortion case, it seems like a lot of people are just throwing that rule of thumb out and predicting at least partially what's going to happen here based on what the justices said today. What do you make of that? Was it so clear in your mind the way that this case was going that the normal caveats may not apply on this one? You know, I think people sometimes project what they would like to see happen, but I think you offer such smart caution, and I would say you're a way above average court watcher. Um, Basically, um, what we saw today is, listen, we we know where Justices Kagan, Breyer, and Sotomayor are. I I think that we know where Justices Alito and Thomas are. I think everybody else, you've got to watch very closely um, with Gorsuch, Barrett, and Kavanaugh, uh, and Roberts. But we did get a lot of clues. We feel like from them today, but again, you're right. You can't read too much into oral arguments. Um, a lot of times you see them play devil's advocate. Um, they will press both sides, uh, and we don't know what they're thinking personally. So I, I think today something that gave the Mississippi folks, the pro-life folks, um, some hope was that Justice Kavanaugh talked a lot about the fact that this court has overturned uh, precedents in the past when they thought they'd made a mistake, when they wanted to make something right. Um, and he's somebody that, you know, we don't have a lot of jurisprudence or anything from him on abortion specifically. So I think that side is definitely going to take encouragement from those comments from him today. Right, because there was a big argument about stare decisis and allowing precedent to remain in place. And the counterpoint being made, Justice Alito made this argument, and apparently the pro-choice side or pro-abortion rights side struggled to respond. He's like, well, what about Plessy versus Ferguson? Or what about Dred Scott? Like horrible, horrible monumental cases that were later overturned. 
where's your position on stare decisis there? And you could also ask, you know, some of the sitting progressives on the court who were more than happy to, you know, overturn, you know, Second Amendment rights, for example. Is that more of a selective thing, <laughs> stare decisis, and, and the reverence for stare decisis, to, depending on sort of what the outcome might look like? That could be setting the table to do something here. It seems like what we're hearing is that the court appears poised to at least limit Roe versus Wade, if not explicitly overturn it. What does that mean? What would that exactly look like? What's the difference? I think that you could predict um, with some chance of success that it looks like they'll uphold the Mississippi ban, the 15-week ban. Um, Even though that's not set in stone, I think that's clearer than the issue of whether they would overturn Roe or Casey. But if if they do, and Justice Kavanaugh again made this point today, even if they did upend those precedents that have been around 50 and 30 years respectively, roughly, it would send this back to the states. Uh, And he said, listen, that doesn't mean that the states would then all ban abortion. They would then have their individual laboratories of democracy, essentially, to go through and make their own decisions about abortion access. And so clearly, um, you know, the administration, the Biden administration is arguing today, along with those in, you know, trying to take down the Mississippi law, that they worry that that um, impacts millions of women who, you know, some states are going to say, great, we limit it at six weeks or 12 weeks or whatever it is, uh, and try to get those laws passed saying um, something that would greatly limit women's options when it came to accessing abortion. But, you know, there's this conversation that, listen, Alabama's probably going to do something different than New York, um, and where you live, live could make a difference. But if Roe and Casey were overturned, it doesn't mean that abortion is outlawed at the federal level. That can't happen. That's right. It means it goes back to the states. Well, and some of the way that this is always framed, I think part of the reason that you sometimes see a big disconnect on abortion when it comes to you know public opinion polls, for example, where people actually have fairly pro-life positions in a lot of ways. And then you ask them, do you want Roe versus Wade to be overturned? And they say by a pretty significant margin, no, we want Roe versus Wade to remain in place. The proponents of Roe versus Wade, abortion rights advocates, they often conflate Roe versus Wade being limited or Roe versus Wade being overturned with an abortion ban. And I'm seeing that word flying around a lot on social media. Like if the court were to come down on the side that I personally hope that they do in this case, that abortion would then be banned in America. That is absolutely untrue. You would have some states with more restrictions like Mississippi, for example, in this case. And then you'd have Oregon, for instance, that passed, in my mind, totally insane, inhumane abortion laws where it's legal all the way up through the moment of birth, paid for by taxpayers, including uh, for illegal immigrants for any reason whatsoever. I mean, that that law would not go anywhere if Roe versus Wade went down or if Roe versus Wade were altered in some way by the court. Is it now just a long waiting game, Shannon, until June? where people sit there and pour over the oral argument and make their predictions, and then we just wait? And is it only the Mississippi case that's going to be decided? What about that Texas law that I know the Supreme Court was looking at recently? Did that come up at all today? It didn't. And um, yes, that Texas case is still pending out there. That's procedural in nature. It doesn't get to the substance of what they've done there, which is essentially limiting almost every abortion after six weeks. And you know, um, there's been a lot of criticism about what Texas put together, unless you're in favor of the law, which is it doesn't have the state or law enforcement agencies enforcing it. It leaves it up to private citizens to bring these lawsuits. Um, So I think we'll hear something soon from the court on that, because it just gets to the procedure about who can sue over that law and not the substance of it. Um, I thought we might have something by now. 
But for the case that was heard today, which is on the substance of these abortion rights right. arguments, they'll take an initial vote behind closed doors this week, um, and that will start the race of writing these different opinions. Um, listen, we know votes change sometimes behind the scenes as people craft their opinions hoping to, to bring another vote to their side. Uh, so that can go on for months, and I do think you're right. I mean, the end of the term is late June, sometimes pushes into early July, but I think this will be one of the last cases we get back. I think it's going to be very difficult and potentially contentious. And it may be one of these situations where um, there's a plurality. There's not a clear 5-4 or 6-3 or something like that. But they cobble together enough to um, make some pronouncement about the Mississippi law, but maybe don't get to Roe and Casey. So, yeah, we're just in a waiting game now. But as you mentioned, I think it's very smart. You point out Oregon and in different states. I mean, those laws aren't going to go anywhere. And, and a lot of states do have trigger laws, meaning if Roe was overturned, either that state immediately bans abortion or they have something in place to immediately codify Roe or essentially the outlines of Roe at the state level. So this is going to be a state game if the court goes that far. But we've talked about this before. The chief justice likes to, uh, I think, chisel things as narrowly as possible, and he's going to be all about protecting the institutional image well, uh, of the court. And that came up repeatedly today about the yes. potential view of this looking like it's political. Yeah, so, so that was my next question, because if you – and I was you know, sort of reading some of the transcripts and what these justices were saying. Sotomayor – and Breyer, two of the liberals, uh, especially Sotomayor, is sort of fanatical on this on this issue. She sounded kind of like an activist almost, an abortion activist at the bench today. And she and Breyer in particular kept coming back to the issue of the legitimacy of the court, sort of warning, like, hey, if we overturn Roe versus Wade, we're not going to have legitimacy in the judiciary anymore, which is exactly what left-wing activists say with this sort of saber-rattling. And I think that that's probably directed at Roberts, the chief justice, trying to peel him off or at least uh, limit what might happen. I don't think that that's a a correct thing uh, for the justices to say, to say our our institution will no longer have legitimacy if we don't get our way. I think that's a dangerous game for them to play, speaking personally. I also don't think it's true. Um, I think that they are reading – it'll be a very charged case. It could very much have an impact. It could have a political impact. I'm not disputing any of that, but uh, I think that they're perhaps overstating things uh, broadly speaking. Some activists will shout very loudly. I think most Americans, uh, as they always do, respond and react to new realities. Here's the thing about Roberts, and I've been curious about this. I don't know the answer, and again, I'm so grateful that we have you, Shannon Bream, so I can bounce this off of you. Roberts, my understanding today, sort of showed his cards a little bit as being very much open to upholding this Mississippi law, uh, which would be a win for the pro-life side, a win for the state of Mississippi, but was trying to maybe carve out some sort of area where you can uphold the Mississippi law without uprooting or massively altering or explicitly overturning Roe versus Wade broadly. That might be a middle ground that he might try to land in. My question is, because the same analysis from, from very, some very smart people, Shannon, I'm sure you've read them too, saying the other five conservative justices seemed pretty solid today, including Kavanaugh, including Gorsuch, including uh, Barrett, in terms of being willing to go perhaps further. Remind me how this works. If Chief Justice Roberts, again, this is totally speculative right now. But I, again, I, I don't think it's a weird question to ask, given what we know. If Chief Justice Roberts decided to join the majority opinion, 
in this case. Let's say it would be six to three because the three liberal justices made it very clear what they're going to do. Let's say it's six to three and Roberts decides let's not make it five to four where I'm going to join the liberals. I'm going to be on the conservative block here. But part of his prerogative, if I'm not mistaken, as chief justice would be he could assign the case to himself in terms of writing the decision. And other justices could write concurrences, but he could be the one who actually authors the opinion is that something that he might do in order to try to frame this thing in the with the considerations that are obviously top of mind for him a lot of the time? Or if there are five justices who are willing to go further, he can't overrule those five, right? That's still a majority. What does that look like? What could he maybe do to position himself? Am I reading too far into this? No, I think you're exactly right, because, you know, having the power to write the majority opinion, that is very powerful, and you're going to craft the message on what is likely to be a landmark case, um, certainly with abortion jurisprudence at this court. Um, And yeah, he has those considerations about if he's in the minority, um, the majority may go further than than he would like. As you said, he, he, you know, the five, if they can cobble together five, they might be willing to go at Roe and Casey and not just uphold the Mississippi law. I mean, that's that's a potential there. So then he is going to think about does he want to be in the minority and safely there saying, listen, this court's gone too far. I'm not going there. Uh, I don't want to um, rattle the foundations of this institution, and I think they're getting this wrong. Um, If he does go uh, and create a 6-3 position on this, um, it's likely it would be, I think, crafted much more narrowly because I think he would insist on that if he was in the majority. So, um, so much of that. But how how would that um, work? Just just to ask you logistically, let's say Mm -hmm. that's what he said. He comes to the other justices, the other five, and he says, look, um, I want to join you. This is the way that I want to write it, and I'm going to assign it to myself. What happens if those five say, well, actually, no, that that's not the decision that we've come to? Does he then get booted out? Like, does does a majority have to accept the sixth vote if they feel like the sixth votes the chief who would then assign it to himself? Do you yeah, see what listen, I'm getting at? Yeah, I do. And listen, if they're not willing to negotiate, as these opinions come together, you do gain, gain and lose votes. And if the five were really that solidly together on that, they would say, nope, we're the majority, and you're, you're no longer writing this opinion. They could say, um, if you can't come with us on what's most important for us in the core decision here, um, this is turning into a 5-4 decision and not a 6-3. Just because he writes it doesn't mean those votes are locked in. They can change at any time. And right. if those five don't want to go on board with what he crafts as somebody – he's writing the majority opinion for 6-3, um, he'll lose the five. He could. It's possible. I mean, that, and again, we're, we are just behind, you know, behind closed doors, there's a lot playing out. We have no access to that. We have no inkling. We do know what Chief Justice Roberts uh, sometimes gets concerned about. There's a lot of speculation that he flipped his vote on the Obamacare case, for example, worried about public reaction the, the appearance of political meddling and that sort of thing. So I, I don't think it's crazy town for us to be talking about Roberts. There's there's a body of work there and there's a fair amount of, you know, uh, reporting about how he thinks and how he views these things. What we don't know is, for example, where Kavanaugh is exactly or where Barrett is or where Gorsuch would be. Are they all locked in together as like, you know, we're going to do the thing or is it like let's be a bit more incremental. Let's uphold Mississippi's law. Let's not you know, gut row entirely, and then we can sort of give everyone a little bit of something. We don't know. And uh, there'll be a lot of folks on pins and needles in in June as we await this decision. 
Uh, but the real clues were today, whether they are determinative, whether they are misleading, we don't know and we won't know for months. But Shannon Bream has been all over it. Chief legal correspondent at Fox News. She'll have coverage of this on her show. I know special report will be covering it. I'll be on the panel tonight. She'll have it on Fox News at night later as well. Midnight Eastern. Shannon, we so appreciate it. Thank you very much for your insights. And we'll all just sort of hold our breath together. We will. Thank you, Guy. Shannon Bream on The Guy Benson Show. We will be right back. The Guy Benson Show. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Back on The Guy Benson Show, we are watching right now the arraignment of the shooting suspect at that Michigan high school, that horrible incident, now four students at that school are dead ranging from ages 14 to 17 just sickening and in rochester hills michigan you have uh, a member of the sheriff's department speaking at this arraignment that is happening live so with a fox news alert let's dip in and listen live to shoot up the school to include uh, murdering students a preliminary review of social media accounts indicate that Ethan Crumbly had access to a firearm and he practiced with a six-hour handgun. Thank you. Um, and I Very well, Your Honor. So, you can just go through each one, uh, one by one, for, uh, starting with, uh, obviously, well, actually, we count one, which indicates the uh, terrorism causing death. Okay. There's a lot of shuffling of papers there. You can't really hear the judge very well. She's got a mask on and she's behind plastic, and apparently there's no microphone either. But we're uh, trying to listen through. The arraignment is underway. Uh, There is a suspect in the case. We are going to try to avoid using the suspect's name because I don't think people should be glorified if they do things like this. A horrible disaster in Michigan. Four students dead as we monitor that story. The Guy Benson Show continues coming up. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. Our second of three hours is now on the air. It's the Guy Benson Show on this Wednesday. Glad to have you all along. Still to come, Jeff Passan of ESPN on all the chaos in Major League Baseball. Looking forward to that chat. Carl Rove will also be here in our next hour. 
As we begin our middle hour here at the program, where our website is GuyBensonShow.com and where the podcast is always free and where we remind you to tune in, please, to Special Report tonight. I'll be on the panel with Brett Bayer and Molly Hemingway and Mara Lyason. Looking forward to that. We bring you a Fox News alert. The Dow just got hammered today, and it was a big late sell-off. The Dow closes down 461 points, ending at 34,022. So it's been a bit of a, a bumpy ride on Wall Street for these last couple days, really dating back to Friday. A lot of that has to do with the new variant and some of the uncertainty there, not just about the variant itself, but the potential response of the government to the variant. I think that's also part of the equation. And then also inflation fears. And let's talk about inflation fears with our next guest, Congressman Kevin Brady of Texas, the 8th Congressional District in the Lone Star State. He is the ranking Republican on the House Ways and Means Committee. Congressman, welcome back to the show. Guy, thanks for having me. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Likewise, let's talk about inflation. Jerome Powell, who's the Fed chair, we played the clip yesterday. He said it's time to retire the term transitory. And there was some indication that they expect inflationary pressures will linger well into next year, perhaps through the summer. What is your take on what we heard from the Fed chair yesterday? What are the broader implications in your mind for the economy? Yeah, so I think one, it's it's too little too late. Uh, the Fed not only was in denial about uh, inflation uh, and its impact, but they goaded Congress this year earlier to go big, go bold, spend more, uh, even though inflation was already taking hold within the economy. Right now we are on, so we'll see how uh, November and December play out, but we're on a path for the highest inflation in 40 years right now. Families are feeling this in a big way, and they know, I think as most of us do, that it is. It was never transitory, and it will be high for a much longer period. And I think this new, really almost $5 trillion Build Back Better uh, uh, plan that's now in the Senate will drive inflation higher for much longer because it's not only more federal spending, huge amounts of federal spending, but they have provisions that actually could uh, force about 2 million Americans or encourage them to exit the workforce. So that, that, too, will make it harder to get goods at good prices in a timely way. That drives inflation. Congressman, we have spoken before on this show multiple times about the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017. You were instrumental in the passage of that legislation, the tax reform signed by President Trump. We have rehearsed all the insane scare tactic talking points that we heard from Democrats about it. It's a, the apocalypse. It's Armageddon. It's Frankenstein's mar- monster. It's the end of the world. Thousands of people will die if tax reform goes through. And one of the things that they said over and over again is that it's tax cuts for the rich and it'll hurt the middle class. And in fact, it was tax cuts across the board, including if not especially for the middle class. On average, Americans in every income group got a tax cut. That was lied about incessantly by the Democrats and sort of uh, the media helped them in a lot of ways. The reason I, I wind up to my question with that is in the Democrats' bill that they just passed out of the House, Build Back Better, Human Infrastructure, Reconciliation, it goes by all those various names, they actually carve out a huge 
tax cut for the rich. And there are nonpartisan experts at the Tax Policy Center who also say it will raise taxes on up to 30 percent of middle class families. So what they said falsely about the tax bill in 2017 based on independent nonpartisan experts is actually what the Democrats bill would do if it became law. Tax cuts for millionaires in blue states, tax increases on millions of middle class families. It's almost beyond parity, but it's real, right? It is real, and you said exactly right. Their claims about Republican tax cuts have been fact-checked so many times, it's hard to believe they still make those claims. But the Speaker of the House did it uh, wrongly on the House floor uh, as she she spoke for that bill. And you're exactly right. The largest tax cuts in the Democrats' bill far and away – go to households making more than a million dollars. In fact, two out of three millionaires will see a huge tax windfall. It's amazing. And and one out of three, nearly one out of three, as you point out, middle class will see a tax hike starting next year. And over time, those hikes affect more of the middle class. And so, yeah, it's incredible. And and that actually, um, Guy, doesn't capture in the half a trillion bucks for the Green New Deal are huge tax breaks for wealthy individuals, big corporations, and of course, as you know, these electric vehicle subsidies for homes making up to half a million dollars a year, those aren't tax credits. They are government checks. We're writing to some of the wealthiest people in your neighborhood if they will buy an electric vehicle. And by the way, they they can buy a nearly a Porsche up to $80,000 electric vehicle, and the neighbors have to subsidize it. It's, it's incredible tax hikes and subsidy or tax cuts and subsidies for the very well-to-do in America. Are you surprised that some of your more moderate Democratic colleagues voted for this? Because the bill is not going to become law as it exists coming out of the House. That whatever happens, and I assume something will happen, it'll change in the Senate, but they attached their names to pass a bill that raises taxes on the middle class and cuts taxes for millionaires. These are the easiest attack ads I've ever thought of. And they all, every single one of them except for one, lined up and voted for it. I agree. Look, um, so when I was standing in the House floor, led the effort on the opposition to it, managed that bill in in opposition. And uh, what I thought of as they were cheering and passing it is look, I know I'm retiring, but a bunch of those Democrats are retiring too. (laughs) They just don't know it yet. But that vote, look, they were abandoned by the president. Those centrists were abandoned, if there are any left, abandoned by the speaker, their own colleagues, inflation and Biden. And now they voluntarily walked off that cliff. Yeah, it is. Uh, you're going to I think that's why you're seeing a record number of retirements already among House yep. Democrats. I think we're going to see a lot more. So uh, that was going to be my next question, because you just made mention of the fact that you announced that you're going to be stepping aside at the end of this term. We're starting to see a lot of that from Democrats, uh, what, 19 now, I believe. And what's especially interesting is two of them who have already announced their impending departure are committee chairmen. So you know, very powerful people who wield a lot of influence and a gavel. What does it tell you? You've been in D.C. for a while. What does it tell you when you have at this stage in the game that many members of the majority party preemptively retiring, including some people who currently – are some of the most powerful people in the whole chamber. So they are 
abandoning the ship. They know what's coming next November. Uh, they they don't want to get beaten, so they'd rather retire. Uh, they also don't want to serve again in the minority. But you're seeing, as you said, you know, pretty powerful leaders doing that. But you've got what they call cardinals, some of the the appropriations leaders, some of the most powerful members of Congress retiring. Uh, and so, yeah, it is. Uh, it's been it's been stunning to see just how influential members are are you know hitting hitting the road right now because they know it's coming congressman brady i want to talk briefly about texas we announced earlier on the show some breaking news today that in georgia stacy abrams has thrown her hat in the ring officially she'll be running for governor in the gubernatorial race in your state there was some will he won't he speculation for a while about Matthew McConaughey, the actor who had been discussing somewhat seriously running for governor, he put out a video a couple days ago announcing uh, that he loves the state and he cares a lot about the state and the country, but he will forego that race. And therefore, it appears for now that it's going to be the incumbent governor, Republican Greg Abbott, against, in all likelihood, again, it's not a done deal, but he's already raising lots of money. Beto O'Rourke, who is uh, seeking yet another office. He, he failed on the Senate level. He failed at the presidential level. Now he wants to be governor of Texas. He said a lot of things, Congressman, when he was running for president. I remember them. You know the Abbott campaign remembers them. Uh, what do you make of Beto O'Rourke as a potential Democratic nominee for governor in Texas next year? Yeah, so I think the Texas media is going to try to, um, as they did the last time against Senator Cruz, make him out to be the third coming uh or second coming uh and he's not i think the 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 bloom is off that rose and people in texas see him for what he is in fact when he was targeting certain state legislative races and getting involved in them candidates were asking him to stay away and they ultimately as democrats lost there i expect i expect governor abbott to beat him handily uh he's taking it the governor's taking it very seriously but recent polls show Look, what the, what the governor is doing to step up on the border is hugely popular. What Texas did on very, I think, very fair and very principled uh, election integrity issues, and even the bill that, that the media has been hammering, but the heartbeat bill that saves about 120 uh, innocent unborn babies every day has popular support, especially among Hispanics in Texas. And so, you know, I think Governor Abbott, look, this is a race. He's going to take it seriously. But at the end of the day, Texas Texas is not going blue by any means. In fact, you see the gains in the valley. I would tell you Republicans and Hispanics, frankly, are creating a partnership that could last a very long time. Well, uh, remains to be seen. I hope you're right about that. You did mention the border there. I'm going to get to a border story coming up in uh, in the next segment. But yeah, it's it could be interesting. A lot of money could pour into that state, but Beto was sort of a lightweight, fake moderate in 2018. 2022 would be a lot more of a Republican year. He's still a lightweight, and there's no moderation left, right? He's He exposed his ideology when he was running for president, and uh, the Republicans in that state certainly have the receipts. Last question for you, Congressman Brady, and it pertains – to something playing out uh, among your conference, among and between uh, some members of the House Republican Conference and the caucus. Uh, We had Nancy Mace from South Carolina on this show yesterday. She has been sparring 
openly back and forth with uh, another member from Georgia, stemming from something that a member from Colorado had to say. It's been kind of messy. My question for you, I'm sure most House Republicans would love for that to to stop overall, but the reports are that uh, Kevin McCarthy, the House Republican leader, called these two in and basically implored them both to to cease fire, and the ceasefire didn't even last a minute. They left the room and immediately started attacking each other again. Are you worried about having an unwieldy conference where where leadership struggles to exert control when there's something that could be detrimental uh, internally to the party that is still in opposition and trying to win back the majority? Yeah, so I, great question. Um, so I think – Look, we have a diverse party, and we're big, and and we're united on all the policy issues. But and 99% of our conference right now is focused where they need to be, which is our job is to stop socialism now, to put back the checks and balances next November that the country desperately needs and start turning things around. That's where our focus needs to be. So, yeah, our conference believes the 1% who are off in another area needs to refocus along with the rest of it, because at the end of the day, we're going to be measured in history by whether we have stopped the socialist agenda or not. That, that's that's what we have to be focused on. Congressman Kevin Brady, Texas 8, the ranking Republican on the House Ways and Means Committee. Congressman, always appreciate it. Thank you. Good to talk to you, guy. Take care. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, I promise that border story. Wait to hear this report from our colleague Bill Malusian, an eye-opening series of statistics about what was discovered at just one sector along the southern border. We bring you that next. Guy Benson will be right back. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. Two topics that I have promised to you that we would not lose sight of are Afghanistan and the border. I know that they don't seem top of mind right now in these crazy news cycles, attention elsewhere, but our attention remains on those topics. So an update on each one for you here in this segment. Number one, Washington Examiner story. Taliban now responsible for executing more than 100 former police and intelligence officers in Afghanistan. This according to the watchdog group Human Rights Watch. And that is allegedly just within four provinces. So you might remember the Taliban when they took over before we were fully out saying, oh, no, we're not interested in vengeance or retribution. Let's just come on back and uh, we're in charge now, but it's going to be fine. No one would be naive enough to believe that. Maybe some people in the Biden administration, but basically no one. And as we know, they have gone door to door, the Taliban and their terrorist buddies. Killing people. And in these four provinces, I guess they've identified 100, 100 plus. And that comes against the backdrop of hundreds, likely thousands of Americans still stuck in Afghanistan, including permanent legal residents. And tens of thousands of the people who helped us, our allies, interpreters, drivers, etc., stuck in that country, even those who had special immigrant visas. 
we just abandoned those people, and they're still there. And the Taliban is doing what the Taliban does, inflicting and imposing terror and death. So that's an update from Afghanistan. Not a happy one, obviously. Rarely are they. But I want to make sure that you remember that that is still happening. It's not out of sight, out of mind if you're still there or if you have a loved one there or someone that you feel obligated to help still there. Meanwhile, at the border, Bill Malugin, our Fox News colleague, tweeted this just this afternoon. It's a breaking story that he has learned. Border Patrol in Del Rio, so the Del Rio sector, has reported that just last week alone, listen to this, just last week alone, in this one sector, Border Patrol has apprehended illegal immigrants from Syria, Lebanon, Northeast Africa, Uzbekistan, and Tajikistan, in addition to many other places as well. But remember, the Biden people say, oh, it's about root causes. So let's just talk about the Northern Triangle. Those countries are important, and their diplomacy hasn't really worked there. They're bringing back Remain in Mexico, kicking and screaming the successful Trump-era policy, because that will help staunch the bleeding just a little bit. But it's not just people from a few different areas or one region or a few countries. Syria, Lebanon, and other places. He writes, Malugin, in October, previous month, the sector, this one sector, encountered 28,111 migrants from 50 different countries in one month. 50 different countries. Open borders attracts this type of migration, illegal immigration. It's the Guy Benson Show. With Fox News Podcasts Plus, you can enjoy all your favorite Fox News podcasts without commercials. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcasts.com. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Halfway through the week, halfway through the show, it's a Wednesday edition of the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is always free. Joining us again is ESPN senior MLB insider Jeff Passan. In addition to his columns on ESPN.com, Jeff is a prominent voice and face across the ESPN family of networks. He provides updates on all the late-breaking news in Major League Baseball, and boy, there are a lot of them this offseason. These last few days have been wild. Jeff, welcome back. Good to have you. Great to be here, Guy. How are you? I'm doing very well. By the way, before we get to baseball, I understand that you just recently signed a new multi-year contract extension with the worldwide leader. So congratulations, and I guess drinks on you if we're ever in the same city. <laughs> I, I think uh, I think I can pay for them now, so I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> That's terrific. You do really good work. I've been following your tweets carefully in the last couple days, more so than usual just because it is really almost chaotic what's happening with two major series of events playing out at the same time related to Major League Baseball. First of all, you are in Irving, Texas. Why are you there? What's happening? There's a deadline pending, right, that could very much impact the game, fans, next season, etc. 
Yeah, at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time tonight, the Major League Baseball and Major League Baseball Players Association's collective bargaining agreement expires. And uh, the expectation, Guy, is that there is going to be a lockout. And, and a lockout, for those unfamiliar, is a tool used by management, essentially, to say to its workers, uh, we do not want you working anymore until we have struck a labor deal. And uh, this is significant for a few reasons. Number one, well, there are going to be no more free agent signings, no more trade. The industry essentially is going to shut down. But more than that, uh, baseball has had labor peace for more than a quarter century now, going back to the 1994-95 strike. And to see something like this happen, to see the chasm between the players and, and the owners at this point after months of negotiating, uh, it's disappointing. And uh, I'm not going to sit here and sound the alarm bells quite yet because we're still a ways away from spring training and from regular season games. But uh, while this this deadline uh, exists and is is important to note, I I think the target date that matters more is somewhere between February 1st and March 1st. If there's not a deal in place by March 1st, then there's a chance that regular season games could be lost. Yeah, so hopefully for pitchers and catchers, if not sooner, but that might not be the case. You mentioned 1994. I actually had moved back to the United States growing up abroad in 1994, became baseball crazy, and then, of course, the strike happened. That strike really alienated a lot of fans, and I think it did some damage for a while with not the entire fan base, but a lot of people. It left a very bitter taste in a lot of mouths. Is there any sense from the current crop of management, owners, players, that they don't want to go down that path? They don't want to risk sort of another stain like that on the sport? Yeah, I I think everybody in their heart of hearts wants a deal. The question is, are they going to be able to get to one? And I think there's a path to it. Right now, though, it's like they're speaking two different languages. They're just talking past each other and uh, the, the most frustrating part is there's really been no progress made over these past couple of months in terms of uh, getting on that path toward a deal. But uh, I, th- there's there's no panic at this point because the, the one thing that's on their side is time. And uh, as long as there is time to get a deal done, I think there should be some sort of optimism. But if you want to be a pessimistic person, I understand completely. Because let's remember, Guy, we talked for the first time last year, I think, in the middle of all the labor chaos when they were trying to figure out during uh, the the height of COVID, how are they going to pull off a baseball season? Exactly. If you recall, if you recall, Major League Baseball wanted a shorter season and they wanted players to take pay cuts. Uh, players said, no, we want a full season and we want our full salaries. And it ended up with Commissioner Rob Manfred imposing a 60-game season. And uh, it, it was a harbinger, I think, to what we see now, where these two sides just have a difficult time coming together on a deal. Well, and here's the thing, Jeff. We mostly do politics on this show, and so this all feels very familiar, right? I am sitting right now just a few blocks from the Capitol where they wait until the very last minute. They love a deadline. They love a cliff. They love some sort of emergency, and if you can fix a situation and address it soon, you might think about it, but if you can push it off and punt, you often do that, especially when the two sides are talking past each other, and when there's a real, I know the deadline's tonight, but as you point out, it's the beginning of December. If you're going to have a lockout, now would be the time. The deadline, in a lot of people's minds, is probably several months from now, so maybe there's like a little bit of a 
negotiating tactic involved here on both sides with the sense of urgency not really there. And it'll maybe get closer and closer to actually getting the sides together and talking in a serious way once the more practical deadlines start to approach. That's sort of my, my D.C. take on this. I think your D.C. take uh, goes to New York as well when it comes to MLB and the MLBPA. And it does remind me a lot of Democrats and Republicans and, and their seeming inability to get together unless they're backed up against the wall. And it's frustrating because you have to understand the, the relationship between labor and management is always going to be adversarial, right? Uh, the 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 players or the workers or whatever it is are, are always looking to get their biggest cut of the pie. But at the same time, there has to be some sort of partnership in place because you want to grow the business. You want to grow the game in this case. And to do so most effectively would be uh, with two sides that want to work together. So uh, there's that push and pull going on right now. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of pushing and a lot of pulling and not a lot of deal making. There is, however, a lot of deal-making in terms of acquisitions and signings, this flurry of activity here. And I have not been following it super closely, but I've been keeping an eye on it. I keep waiting for the Yankees to do something interesting and maybe address the shortstop situation. Maybe you can fill us in on that. But it's hard to ignore, for example, what the Texas Rangers have been up to, what the New York Mets have been up to. Are are those the two sort of – heaviest hitters so far in this process? Yeah, I mean, the Rangers, uh, with just Corey Seager and Marcus Simeon, guaranteed a half billion dollars. Um, the the New York crazy. Mets are over a quarter billion at this point. Uh, having gone out and gotten Max Scherzer and Mark Canna, Starling Marte, and Eduardo Escobar, um, they're, they're, let's put it this way, there, there's not a, a lack of money in the industry at this point. And whereas in recent years, you've seen free agencies sort of pushed off a few months, uh, this has been the busiest November I can remember, and I've been covering baseball almost 20 years now. Uh, we've seen more than $1.6 billion spent on free agents up to this point. And it is barreling toward a, not just a record amount of spending, but uh, significantly higher than the $2.1 billion spent in the winter a couple of years ago. And so, uh, you know, we talk about a deadline and, and how it can compel people to do things. Well, uh, the deadline uh, has been for free agent signings, at least December 1st. And you see what the consequence of that has been. It's been an incredible week in baseball. The Scherzer signing by the Mets, the amount of money just in that one signing alone totally blew me away. As a Yankee fan, I'm very familiar with going out and getting an ace pitcher and spending a lot of money for him. And then, you know, the cards are on the table and things didn't go so well at the end of last season in the postseason for the Yankees. Scherzer has, you know, a a clear record. There's a reason why he commands that amount of money. He's not exactly young anymore. Are you surprised by the salary that he's signed for. What is it, $130 million for three years? Yeah, I mean, when you look at the average annual value of $43.3 million, it's 20% higher than the previous high for a Major League Baseball player, Garrett Cole, who got $36 million a year over nine Jeff, years from the New York I, I just have to, I have to ask, just out of curiosity, $43.3 million a year, that's a lot. How does that compare to your new contract? Is, are you sort of in the, in the ballpark? 
Yeah, yeah, we're we're neighbors. Uh, I'm I'm going and buying a mansion down in uh, Jupiter, Florida, as well. <laughs> anyway, go on. I just I cannot get my head around that forty three million dollars yeah. for a pitcher. Yeah, it's, they it's, pit, it's, they they it's, they play every four or five days. Yeah, I mean it's it is a difficult to fathom number, but uh, it, it speaks to a couple of things. I think one is the desire for the New York Mets to win. I mean, remember they haven't won a World Series since nineteen eighty six, and Steve Cohen, their new owner, is the richest owner in baseball and that worth of about $15 billion. So uh, this is a drop in the bucket for him. But uh, beyond that, uh, I think it illustrates just how important pitching is to, to these teams. And Max Scherzer is, is a clear surefire first ballot Hall of Famer, but he's also 37 years old. So it's not just $43 million a year for any player. It's $43 million a year for a guy who's toward the tail end of his career. Yeah, he's older than I am. Um, I mean, we're young in our industry. That's not super young in that industry. Are there any big open questions that you are most intrigued to see? Certain holes that need to be filled with certain franchises, certain players that are very much on the open market right now. What are the big storylines that you're following still? I mean, Carlos Correa, the best player uh, on the free agent market this offseason, is you know still out there. And uh, it's going to be very interesting to see uh, where he goes because the options are limited. But, uh, hey, like you said, the New York Yankees do need a shortstop. Oh, they certainly do. I'm eager to see what happens there. And someone who's covering all of it in detail, day by day, really hour by hour, is Jeff Passan of ESPN, their senior MLB insider at the network. You can read his stuff at ESPN.com. You see him all over the family of networks there as well. Jeff, always appreciate it. We'll be right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Back here on the Guy Benson Show, well, we had Howie Kurtz on the program yesterday, the host of Media Buzz here at Fox News, and we were talking about this Chris Cuomo scandal at CNN. And while we were on the air, Chris Cuomo was still a primetime anchor at CNN, and everyone was sort of wondering, will anything happen to him? What will he say, if anything, on the air later that night when his time slot came up at 9 p.m.? But just after we got off the air yesterday, CNN put out an announcement that they are indefinitely suspending Chris Cuomo. Quote, this is their statement. The New York Attorney General's office released transcripts and exhibits Monday that shed new light on Chris Cuomo's involvement in his brother's defense. The documents, which we were not privy to before their public release, raised serious questions. When Chris admitted to us that he had offered advice to his brother's staff, he broke our rules, and we acknowledge that publicly. But we also appreciated the unique position he was in and understood his need to put family first and job second. However, these documents point to a greater level of involvement in his brother's efforts than we previously knew. As a result, we have suspended Chris indefinitely pending further evaluation. I wonder what that pending further evaluation actually means. They're admitting in the statement, yep, he broke our rules, but we kind of let it slide because family first. The problem is he didn't even come close to copping to the extent of his involvement in his brother's PR efforts. 
And he, I think, was less than forthcoming about that, I think, to put it charitably. It was also the sleuthing, using his media connections and his position as a CNN anchor to try to sniff out new information that other journalists were digging up to report about his brother and then get that info and that intel and feed it back to the political operation of his brother, Andrew Cuomo. That is another layer of an ethical breach. And so I guess CNN felt like they had their back to the wall. They also don't have much of a leg to stand on when it comes to the whole family first thing. And it's a unique position. They had encouraged and fostered an environment in which Chris and Andrew Cuomo would appear on the air together during COVID. It was like like a shtick. Right. You had the governor and his kid brother. It was a whole routine that they did. And it was charming to some and sort of lovely and a welcome relief. And they said, "Okay, this is good. This is good TV. Then when the news turned bad, the news cycles turned south and sour for the older brother, the disgraced resigned governor of New York, because they were having a lot of fun and joking around on TV while there was a lot of bad stuff going on behind the scenes. Special treatment for the Cuomo family, including Chris Cuomo, when it came to testing, for example. Misuse of taxpayer resources, i.e. staff, to work on Cuomo's book that he made millions of dollars writing. And, of course, the massive cover-up of COVID deaths in nursing homes and the changing midstream of certain definitions and how they were counting deaths and a really intensive effort to keep that information from the public in order to uphold a narrative that was also not just a very useful political narrative for the Democrats, with Cuomo being a foil against Trump. They held him up as some exemplar, but also a very lucrative one for him personally. So that was all happening behind the scenes while the brothers were yucking it up. Then all of a sudden, it's less good, less rainbows and butterflies for Andrew Cuomo, and all of a sudden the ethics start to intervene. Oh, we can't cover it on this show. For all the obvious reasons, that was blessed. That trajectory was solidified by CNN Brass. I think that's part of the reason why Cuomo didn't get into more trouble sooner, in addition to his ratings, which aren't great, but for CNN they're good. But with this degree of embarrassment and the new lapses and revelations that we all just learned about, it really felt like they had to do something. And there was a huge amount of pressure, as Howie pointed out yesterday, even from left-leaning media, sort of the CNN club. There are reports that internally there were some very angry people. I saw one report that Jake Tapper was ticked off and let people know about it. So... Cuomo is suspended indefinitely. I saw Sean Hannity last night made some interesting points saying he believes in second chances. He doesn't think that Cuomo should be canceled. I wonder if that's the type of grace that he would get from CNN's on-air folks. I kind of doubt it. But that's Sean's take. I think that's certainly interesting. I don't necessarily disagree. You do wonder what that word indefinite means. Brian Stelter, who's their sort of media guy, PR agent over there. He was speculating that it could be just a matter of weeks. Cuomo could come back to the air in January. I guess we'll see. One other CNN note very quickly. There was the case at the Supreme Court today on abortion. We talked to Shannon Bream about it earlier. 
Jeffrey Tubin is one of their big legal experts over at CNN. They had him all over the air talking about the abortion case. Tubin is notoriously pro-abortion rights. It's not really a secret which side he's pulling for, so to speak. But I think it's interesting to take abortion-related analysis, legal analysis, from someone who has maybe some skin in the game, as Jeffrey Tubin famously impregnated the daughter of a colleague and pressured her to get an abortion, which she did not want. So that's the legal analyst doing the legal analysis on an abortion case over at CNN, in case that context was lost on you. I want to give you a heads up there. Not sure what the ethics of that might look like, but just a public service announcement. Just take his analysis maybe with a grain of salt as he whacks away at the conservative justices and maybe massages some of the facts to fit his narrative. Just to use a couple random verbs. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, our final hour, is straight ahead. Stay with us. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America is listening to Fox News. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is the happy hour on this Wednesday edition of the Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. Every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, GuyBensonShow.com, our website. The podcast is free of charge and on demand after each show every single day, plus bonus Benson on the weekends. That's GuyBensonShow.com. And the happy hour brought to you by the Finnish Long Drink, which is crisp and refreshing and delicious year-round. TheLongDrink.com is their website. They're expanding across the country. You can find out where they are sold near you. You can also order online. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. With us now is Carl Rowe, former Deputy Chief of Staff and Senior Advisor, President George W. Bush, author also of The Triumph of William McKinley. He's a Wall Street Journal columnist, a Fox News contributor, a very busy guy. Carl, it's great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. I would like to get right out of the gate just an overall assessment. You were a senior presidential advisor, as I just mentioned in your bio. You were tasked, among other things, with having a sense of where the presidency was, where the country was, and trying to make the presidency of George W. Bush as successful as possible. You are not on the inside, obviously, with this administration, opposite party, all sorts of differences. However, you still have those political instincts. You can still get a sense of where the winds are blowing. You look at a lot of data. We are now in December of the first full year of this new president and the job that he's been doing so far. What is your overall assessment of the state of the Biden presidency? Well, it's in trouble. Um, they came in with the ability to do lots of good things, and um, instead they've made a mess of it. And um, 
you know, whether it was COVID, where they uh, said, you know, we're going to get it all done by July 4th, whether it was Afghanistan, where they said, we're going to pull out, and it wasn't it brilliantly executed, to inflation, which they've ignored, to the, to the crisis on the southern border, where they put Kamala Harris in charge and have a tone deaf. And, I mean, when you have the Secretary of Homeland Security unable to tell you, tell a committee member how many encounters there were by ICE personnel, Border Patrol personnel in the previous month with people trying to cross the border illegally. You got a guy who's out of touch. So I look at this and say, he came in under, after conducting a campaign that was very simple and powerful. I'm going to be normal. The guy who's in there has bungled COVID. I'm going to do a better job of it. And I'm going to find a way to bring together Republicans and Democrats and restore some sense of normality to Washington. And he's done none of those things. And what he has attempted to do, he has done badly. Um, you know, take take you know, take take the supply chain issue. This is not new. We've seen this earlier this year. Those boats were stacking up off of the California, the Southern California coast, six and seven and eight and nine months ago. And and even today, you cannot tell me. They said, we're the supply chain is a problem. Well, what the heck's your plan? And and who's in charge? It, it certainly is not the Secretary of Transportation. He took maternity leave. Granted, he sh- he's entitled to it. But normally, when a cabinet secretary says, I'm stepping away from my job for a number of weeks, they designate somebody to operate in their stead. And he didn't. And besides that, what has he done to tackle the supply chain issue? What's the Secretary of Commerce uh, done to tackle it? The Secretary of the Treasury is trying to stay as far away from it as possible. Brian Deese, the National Economic Council guy, we we haven't heard a peep from him on the issue for months. So who's in charge? Is, Is the president thinking ahead on these things? Is his chief of staff thinking ahead on these things? Is the White House policy structure trying to stay ahead of these issues and saying this is emerging as an issue? Who's in charge? What do we need to do? I I don't get a sense of it. Meanwhile, you mentioned the Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg. Someone that you didn't mention is the Vice President, Kamala Harris, but there has been quite a lot of buzz in D.C., and I know you've probably gotten wind of it, Carl, in the last couple weeks, really, some hit pieces, some leaks about Kamala back and forth, the vice president. She's unhappy. She's feeling underused and not supported. And then other people saying, well, she's she's unpopular and, you know, she's a little bit toxic and the Democrats are worried about her. Might they try to replace her if she's you know going to be a front runner in 2024? They might already be feeling some anxiety about that. Buttigieg obviously still wants to be president, seems to be telling people that maybe not so quietly because the whispers are loud enough that it's getting written about. I'm just a little bit surprised to see that much internal turmoil and palace intrigue. What is it, 11 months into the presidency? They're not even done with the first half of the term of the current president, right? They're in year one of a four-year term, and already there's a lot of jockeying happening ahead of 2024. That doesn't seem like a, a terribly healthy work environment over there at the White House. Uh, I think you're right. I mean, first of all, let's let's be honest about it. All this talk about uh, Joe Biden running for a second term in 2024 is baloney. The Democrats are not going to nominate an 82-year-old fella who's lost a couple of steps to lead their party until he's 86. That just is not going to happen. They know that that would be a sure recipe for defeat. But he's not going to get better by 2024. He's going to get worse. 
you know, this is a demanding job. There's a reason why people come into that office and leave it with their hair four years or eight years later gray and with, with their faces, you know, with a lot of fresh lines on them. It is a demanding, tough job. So he's not going to be the nominee of the Democratic Party. And it says something that his hold on the, on his own administration is is diminished so much that already you have two things underway. One is an open sort of, you know, sharp elbow uh, effort to get ahead of uh, of themselves on the part of Harris and Buttigieg, with Buttigieg being the offender, the principal offender here. What he's doing is not helpful to him, certainly not helpful to the president that he serves, not helpful to his party. Sure, be ambitious, but at least be subtle about it and be behind the scenes. Don't be out there literally talking to people about it in such a way that they get re- anything you say on that subject is going to be repeated to the New York Times or the Washington Post. The second issue is to think about it. The shots taken at Kamala Harris came from the West Wing. They came from the, 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 the staff of the, of the President of the United States. Yep, and, and they're firing back, and, right? It's, it's within the administration. Yeah, not a pleasant place to be, I bet. Let's talk about 2022, which is much closer than 2024. We just saw what happened in Virginia and New Jersey and elsewhere. I'm convinced that if the midterm elections were soon, Like within the next few weeks or even the next few months, I think it would be a blowout for the Republicans. But we are still not quite, but close to a year away. A lot of time between now and then. Many things can change in politics. What is your read on what happened this past November, Carl? And how are things teeing up for 2022? And do the Democrats have enough time to turn this thing around? Well, they don't have time to turn. They they have time to improve their position but they don't have time to turn it around. I mean, think about this. Um, in, in, in the history of our country, since the emergence of what we call the second party system in 1818, there have been two instances where the White House party has gained seats in the, in the House of Representatives uh, in, in, the, in the first midterm, 1934 and 2002, twice, twice. Uh, and if you look at it, uh, you know, the, the Democrats are not in as good a position to start with as the Democrats were in 1932 or in uh, the Republicans were in 2000. So um, approaching the midterms. So that, and there was 9-11, on. right? 9-11 was such a black swan event that can very yeah. much help explain what happened in 02. Yeah. And, and having a recession that is blamed on the previous uh, Republican administration helps a Democratic president when, you know, 25 percent of the American population is out of work. And the only guy who seems to care about it and, and, and doing things that are alleviating suffering is the sitting Democrat president who's pleading, I need more help to get these things through, particularly in the Senate. So they're, they're not going to they're going to have an ugly year. The question is, how ugly is it going to be? And to some degree, that's that's dependent upon the Democrats. Mainly, do they run good campaigns? Do they keep a lot of uh, incumbents on the field, particularly in the House? And does the president do anything marginally to improve his, his standing? But the bigger thing that will depend uh, that, that will affect the outcome in 2024, in my opinion, is the quality of Republican candidates and the quality of the Republican messaging. Are they going to go to the people and say, not just simply, let us be a check and a balance on Joe Biden and his administration, but are they also going to be able to make a principled case for why they oppose things like the Build Back Better plan? And most important of all, are they going to offer anything that appears as an alternative, positive vision for the future of the country? People will vote for Republicans in order to have a 
check and a balance on Biden. They'll vote for a lot more Republicans if they can have both a check and a balance and some kind of a positive, optimistic agenda that seems to them, like in Virginia this year yep. with Youngkin, they said, exactly. they said about Youngkin, the guy knows what he wants to do. And the things that he's talking about, improving our schools, making it easier to get a job, keeping our neighborhood safe from crime, all of those things seem to make sense to me, the voter. And so while I may have even voted for Biden, uh, and I may be a moderate uh, Democrat or an independent, I'm going for the Republican because he's fresh and new and talking about the future. And Terry McAuliffe, he seems to only be able to talk about the past. You just referenced keeping incumbents on the field for 2022, that being perhaps a priority for the Democratic Party. Well, just today, I saw, I believe, the 19th House Democrat to announce a retirement upcoming. And this guy, in this case from Oregon, is a committee chairman. That's usually not a great sign when you're a party heading into a midterm or any election and a bunch of your people are looking for the exits. I read that that's now more people have announced their retirements ahead of 2022 than we saw from the Democrats ahead of 2010. We remember how 2010 went. Yeah, well, that's at this at, at this point, and and uh, so we still have some a lot of time to go. But it is indicative. Sure. Look, if you're Peter DeFazio of Oregon, you're chairman of the House Transportation Committee. Do you really want to stick around and be in the minority? No, you're you're going to get out, and and that means there's going to be a contested Democratic primary, going to sop up some money. What's really problematic are are you know John Yarmuth, the budget chairman, same situation, not going to be the chairman of the budget committee after next year, so he's out. What is really problematic is if that spread to swing districts where people say, you know what, I'm, I'm in the majority now, but I don't want to come back in the minority. And not only that, but I'm likely to lose this race. I'd rather get out with my political reputation intact. And and we haven't seen a lot of that yet, but we have. there there is the potential for that to happen. I, I do want to strike one cautionary note. I've got a friend who's a political scientist named John Petrosik. From the, he, he was originally at Stanford, was the chairman of the Department of the University of Missouri, now retired. He did an interesting study. Remember, one thing is the Republicans did something that was very unusual in 2020. We lost the White House and gained seats in the House. In the right. 19 presidential elections since World War II, the, the, the party that loses the White House has picked up seats in eight out of 19. Eleven times out of 19, they've lost seats. In eight out of 19, they have picked up seats. And most of the time, it's like one or two or three seats. Republicans picked up 13, which I think is the second largest number uh, of seats uh, in those eight elections. So the Republicans have got a head start on getting the majority back. That's why the Democrats only have a five-seat majority. So I don't think this is going to be like 2010 when we pick up 63 seats because we'd lost seats in 2008. And so, right. uh, you know, there's less low-hanging fruit this time right, exactly. than there was, you know, on the board last uh, last time that you mentioned the big blowout 2010. Carl, last question. There's kind of this ugly battle going on very publicly between two freshman Republican in the House, two women. And when it comes to this particular feud, I definitely am on one side. I'm on Team Nancy Mace. She was on the show yesterday taking her shots at her colleague from Georgia back and forth. I guess the colleague from Georgia went and had a phone call with Donald Trump. Setting aside what you think of this particular skirmish, here's something that does concern me a little bit. Assuming that the Republicans win back the majority in the lower chamber next year, which they're very much favored to do, 
reportedly, Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader, called these two ladies in and basically told them to knock it off. You know, enough of the public brawling here. Let's all move on as a team. And the reports are that uh, the backbencher from Georgia walked out of the meeting and immediately went out to reporters to keep trashing Nancy Mace. And then Mace responded publicly. I mean, the attempted truce brokering by the Republican leader did not even last seconds. And that could portend a pretty messy majority for the Republicans if you have members just openly at war with each other and leadership apparently unable to corral it. I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, look, I think the member from Georgia, who, when she's not worried about uh, Jewish space lasers starting uh, uh, fires in Northern California so that Jewish-owned <laughs> companies can engage in fire remediation, when she's not worried about that kind of stuff, the only thing she seems to be interested in is trashing fellow Republicans. And, uh, you know, she doesn't have much to do, having no committee assignments. Um, maybe we ought to give her a committee assignment on the Committee on Widgets and Gadgets, so at least she's occupied. But I, I think she is a uh, – her interest is to basically blow things up. And she has no constructive impulse, in my opinion, and deserve every every bit uh, uh, that she gets. Um, um, count me on Team Mace. Carl Rowe, former Deputy Chief of Staff and Senior Advisor to President George W. Bush. His book, The Triumph of William McKinley, you can go buy it and read it, maybe get it as a Christmas gift. He's a columnist at the Wall Street Journal and, of course, a colleague here as a Fox News contributor. Carl, it is always a pleasure. Merry Christmas to you. Let's talk again soon. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Merry Christmas to you and yours. Carl Rove on The Guy Benson Show. It's the happy hour, and we'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Happy hour on the Guy Benson Show, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is relevant to this story. It's a term I had not heard before. Intoxiflation. CBS News has a story about how Americans are cutting back on what they're buying because everything costs more. But there's an exception. Booze. Most Americans are going to keep buying the same amount of booze even as prices go up. And here's the story. As prices continue to rise, some people are cutting back on what they purchase, except when it comes to alcohol. There's a survey of more than 3,800 Americans. And the survey found that, for example, in Florida... Roughly two out of three Floridians will continue to buy the same amount of alcohol they normally would throughout the holiday season, regardless of inflated costs. The national average is about 60%. The state that was most eager to keep buying booze, no matter what, was Vermont. My money would have been on Wisconsin, by the way, but it was Vermont. 90% said they would keep buying the same amount despite the higher costs. Survey also found that more than a third of Americans, 37%, consider alcohol to be an essential purchase. And when I read this story, I immediately thought, is our very own producer Christine moonlighting as a CBS producer? Because I could just picture her in the pitch meeting being like, I think we should talk about booze purchases. Is alcohol an essential purchase? I think in some households, it certainly is. Christine, are you uh, stepping out on us here? Are you directing some of the news coverage over at CBS these days? I am not, but I 100% agree with this study that I will make cuts elsewhere. 
But not with the hooch. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, sacrifices elsewhere, not on this. When I mentioned this headline earlier, Wyatt responded by saying, did Christine write the story? So we're just on the same wavelength. And we'll hear much more from Cookie coming up in the home stretch later this hour. It is the happy hour. It is the Guy Benson Show. Stay with us. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Earlier in the program today, we caught up with our colleague Shannon Bream, chief legal correspondent here at Fox News, also anchor of Fox News at night, every evening at midnight. Today, she was very much wearing that chief legal correspondent hat. Big day at the Supreme Court, big abortion case, a lot of eyes on the nine justices. What happened today? We asked her about it. Here's part of that conversation. I want to start with a big picture question, which is my understanding as a non-expert court watcher, right? I'm sort of an amateur, is that they've told us for so long, never draw conclusions from oral arguments, right? Because you never quite know if a justice is just, you know, test driving an argument. You don't really know if that's going to reflect the final decision. And yet today, watching the coverage of the oral arguments in the Mississippi abortion case, it seems like a lot of people are just throwing that rule of thumb out and predicting at least partially what's going to happen here based on what the justices said today. What do you make of that? Was it so clear in your mind the way that this case was going that the normal caveats may not apply on this one? You know, I think people sometimes project what they would like to see happen, but I think you offer such smart caution, and I would say you're a way above average court watcher. Um, basically, um, what we saw today is, listen, we, we know where Justices Kagan, Breyer, and Sotomayor are. I, I think that we know where Justices Alito and Thomas are. I think everybody else you've got to watch very closely um, with Gorsuch, Barrett, and Kavanaugh uh, and Roberts, but we did get a lot of clues. We feel like from them today, but again, you're right. You can't read too much into oral arguments. Um, a lot of times you see them play devil's advocate. Um, they will press both sides, uh, and we don't know what they're thinking personally. So I, I think today something that gave the Mississippi folks, the pro-life folks, um, some hope was that Justice Kavanaugh talked a lot about the fact that this court has overturned uh, precedents in the past when they thought they'd made a mistake, when they wanted to make something right. Um, and he's somebody that, you know, we don't have a lot of jurisprudence or anything from him on abortion specifically. So I think that side is definitely going to take encouragement from those comments from him today. Right, because there was a big argument about stare decisis and allowing precedent to remain in place. And the counterpoint being made, Justice Alito made this argument, and apparently the pro-choice side or pro-abortion rights side struggled to respond. He's like, well, what about Plessy versus Ferguson? Or what about Dred Scott? Like horrible, horrible monumental cases that were later overturned, where's your position on stare decisis there? And you could also ask, you know, some of the sitting progressives on the court who were more than happy to, you know, overturn, you know, Second Amendment rights, for example. Is that more of a selective thing, (laughs) stare decisis, and and the reverence for stare decisis, depending on sort of what the outcome might look like, that could be setting the table to do something here. 
it seems like what we're hearing is that the court appears poised to at least limit Roe versus Wade, if not explicitly overturn it. What does that mean? What would that exactly look like? What's the difference? I, I think that you could predict um with some chance of success that it looks like they'll uphold the Mississippi ban, the 15-week ban, Um, even though that's not set in stone. I think that's clearer than the issue of whether they would overturn Roe or Casey. But if if they do, and Justice Kavanaugh again made this point today, even if they did upend those precedents that have been around 50 and 30 years respectively, roughly, it would send this back to the states. Uh, And he said, listen, that doesn't mean that the states would then all ban abortion. They would then have their individual laboratories of democracy essentially, to go through and make their own decisions about abortion access. And so clearly, um, you know, the administration, the Biden administration is arguing today, along with those in, you know, trying to take down the Mississippi law, that they worry that that um, impacts millions of women who, you know, some states are going to say, great, we limit it at six weeks or 12 weeks or whatever it is, uh, and try to get those laws passed saying um, something that would greatly limit women's options when it came to accessing abortion. But, you know, there's this conversation that, listen, Alabama's probably going to do something different than New York um, and where you live, live could make a difference. But if Roe and Casey were overturned, it doesn't mean that abortion is outlawed at the federal level. That can't happen. That's right. It means it goes back to the states. Well, and some of the way that this is always framed, I think part of the reason that you sometimes see a big disconnect on abortion when it comes to you know public opinion polls, for example, where people actually have fairly pro-life positions in a lot of ways. And then you ask them, do you want Roe versus Wade to be overturned? And they say by a pretty significant margin, no, we want Roe versus Wade to remain in place. The proponents of Roe versus Wade, abortion rights advocates, they often conflate Roe versus Wade being limited or Roe versus Wade being overturned with an abortion ban. And I'm seeing that word flying around a lot on social media. Like if the court were to come down on the side that I personally hope that they do in this case, that abortion would then be banned in America. That is absolutely untrue. You would have some states with more restrictions, like Mississippi, for example, in this case. And then you'd have Oregon, for instance, that passed, in my mind, totally insane, inhumane abortion laws where it's legal all the way up through the moment of birth, paid for by taxpayers, including uh, for illegal immigrants for any reason whatsoever. I mean, that that law would not go anywhere. If Roe versus Wade went down or if Roe versus Wade were altered in some way by the court, is it now just a long waiting game, Shannon, until June where people sit there and pour over the oral argument and make their predictions and then we just wait? And is it only the Mississippi case that's going to be decided? What about that Texas law that I know the Supreme Court was looking at recently? Did that come up at all today? It didn't. And um, yes, that Texas case is still pending out there. That's procedural in nature. It doesn't get to the substance of what they've done there, which is essentially limiting almost every abortion after six weeks. And you know, um, there's been a lot of criticism about what Texas put together, unless you're in favor of the law, which is it doesn't have the state or law enforcement agencies enforcing it. It leaves it up to private citizens to bring these lawsuits. Um, So I think we'll hear something soon from the court on that, because it just gets to the procedure about who can sue over that law and not the substance of it. Um, I thought we might have something by now. 
But for the case that was heard today, which is on the substance of these abortion rights right. arguments, they'll take an initial vote behind closed doors this week, um, and that will start the race of writing these different opinions. Um, listen, we know votes change sometimes behind the scenes as people craft their opinions, hoping to, to bring another vote to their side. Uh, so that can go on for months. And I do think you're right. I mean, the end of the term is late June, sometimes pushes into early July. But I think this will be one of the last cases we get back. I think it's going to be very difficult and potentially contentious. And it may be one of these situations where um, there's a plurality. There's not a clear 5-4 or 6-3 or something like that. But they cobble together enough to um, make some pronouncement about the Mississippi law, but maybe don't get to Rowan Casey. So, yeah, we're just in a waiting game now. But as you mentioned, I think it's very smart. You point out Oregon and in different states. I mean, those laws aren't going to go anywhere. And, and a lot of states do have trigger laws, meaning if Roe was overturned, either that state immediately bans abortion or they have something in place to immediately codify Roe or essentially the outlines of Roe at the state level. So this is going to be a, a state game if the court goes that far. But we talked about this before. The chief justice likes to, uh, I think, chisel things as narrowly as possible. And he's going to be all about protecting the institutional image well, uh, of the court. And that came up repeatedly today about the yes. potential view of this looking like it's political. Yeah. So, so that was my next question, because if you and I was you know, sort of reading some of the transcripts and what these justices were saying, Sotomayor and Breyer, two of the liberals, uh, especially Sotomayor is sort of fanatical on this on this issue. She sounded kind of like an activist, almost an abortion activist at the bench today. And she and Breyer in particular kept coming back to the issue of the legitimacy of the court, sort of warning, like, hey, if we overturn Roe versus Wade, we're not going to have legitimacy in the judiciary anymore, which is exactly what left wing activists say with this sort of saber rattling. And I think that that's probably directed at Roberts, the chief justice, trying to peel him off or at least uh, limit what might happen. I don't think that that's a a correct thing uh, for the justices to say, to say our our institution will no longer have legitimacy if we don't get our way. I think that's a dangerous game for them to play, speaking personally. I also don't think it's true. Um, I think that they are reading. It'll be a very charged case. It could very much have an impact. It could have a political impact. I'm not disputing any of that, but uh, I think that they're perhaps overstating things. Uh, broadly speaking, some activists will shout very loudly. I think most Americans, uh, as they always do, respond and react to new realities. Here's the thing about Roberts, and I've been curious about this. I don't know the answer. And again, I'm so grateful that we have you, Shannon Bream, so I can bounce this off of you. Roberts, my understanding today, sort of showed his cards a little bit as being very much open to upholding this Mississippi law. My full interview with Shannon Bream and her analysis on SCOTUS available online. GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every day. It's growing thanks to all of you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, a study about Christmas music. Is it actually a stressor for people? We'll discuss that straight ahead. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. It's the home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. And if you're listening on the broadcast, you can hear a Christmas song playing, which is related to the topic, so I'll allow it. But we did have an internal debate over which I ultimately wield the final say about when we start using Christmas music in our bumper music during the season. 
And I'll just remind you, our website, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is always free, all that good stuff. Tune in tonight, special report. I'll be on the panel with Brett Bayer and company this evening in the 6 p.m. hour Eastern time. So I am willing to countenance Christmas music starting today, December 1st. It is now acceptable in my mind. I'm in a headspace where I can hear Christmas music and be like, okay. As for playing it as our bumper music, to me, that's going to start at the earliest late next week. Probably the week of the 13th. So we could have the two weeks leading up to Christmas. I think that's fair. Maybe two and a half weeks. I'm open to debating that. I hear that Christine and Wyatt are colluding against me on this front. That they have formed an unholy and rare alliance. Wyatt, you agree with Christine? You feel like we should already be in the Christmas music stuff in the rotation? I have to say I do. And and she did not pay me to say that. I, I do think Christmas music should start in the bumper rotation today. Well, she may not have paid you. I'm not surprised. Did she threaten you, though? No, she didn't. Were you the one who was chasing her through Penn Station, allegedly? Gosh, that that went off the rails yesterday in this segment. If you missed yesterday's home stretch, it will be in bonus, Benson. I was not expecting that turn of fate, and yet that's what we experienced. Christine, you are... Hang on. So, Christine, you feel like the Christmas music is, like, well overdue already. Yes, we are very, very late with the Christmas music, especially the bumpers coming in. Um, I have been playing Christmas music since November 1st. You are very late. I understand maybe for the show we could have waited a, you know, a little bit, but today's the day. Today's the day that we should incorporate. Yeah. Well, we Christ- played one. We played one this segment. Yeah, but you're not so going to y- let us play anymore. I mean, maybe for select segments. Because we'll be talking, for example, about the upcoming Christmas party tomorrow, Friday. Maybe we can do Christmas songs for Christmas segments. I'm open to that. That might be a compromise. And here's the thing. Not everyone wants to hear the Christmas music, even now. Even while I am very much open to it, foxnews.com has this lifestyle story today. Does Christmas music stress you out? Here's what the story says. It's supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year, but for many people, the holidays are a stressful time. And for some, the stress can be compounded by the prevalent and in some cases inescapable Christmas music. Though there hasn't been any intensive research on the topic, a few surveys in the last decade have found that some portion of Americans really don't like Christmas music. I mean, look, some portion of Americans are also communists, so... I'm not too worried about that. Not everyone celebrates, although I think you cannot be a Christian or a person who celebrates Christmas and still appreciate Christmas music at a certain time of year. I have a very viscerally negative reaction to premature Christmas music, which is different, and it's a debate that we have every year and, in fact, a debate that we're having a little bit here in this segment. There is one thing, though, that was brought to my attention in a tweet yesterday that I can now no longer unhear. And so I feel like I have to inflict this on all of you as well. So Olivier Knox, who is a reporter, a journalist here in D.C., he's at the Washington Post. He tweeted 10 years ago about this, and then I guess he re-ups his tweet every year. And I had never seen it until yesterday. 
But he realized that, well, there's a famous Christmas song that you've absolutely heard probably a thousand times, maybe a million times. Sleigh Ride. Here's a part of it. Cut 17. You know this. So that's the uh, giddy up, giddy up, giddy up, let's go part of the song. Fine. What Olivier Knox noticed was that a certain very famous theme song here within the Fox family basically does the giddy up, let's go part of the Christmas carol. But in the context of football, the NFL on Fox, one of the most famous sports theme songs in America, kind of just incorporates that riff. Am I wrong? Is he wrong? I don't think so. Cut 16. It's giddy up, giddy up, giddy up. Let's go. I'm never going to be able to not hear that. I don't know if I'm mad at Olivier Knox for noticing this and tweeting it out into the world where it found its way to my eyes and my brain? Am I mad? Am I grateful? Play them back to back. Do the do the original song first and then the Fox NFL theme song, 17, then 16. See, that's definitely more intense and not as cheerful sounding but it's the same beat and kind of the same tune it's kind of freaking me out I'm not sure if I love it or hate it but I will hear that forever as I watch football on Fox and at least for my team the college football season is very much over what a disaster that was for Northwestern so I can just turn the page football-wise, distract myself from the season that just occurred. All right, we are up on the clock. Join me next hour on Special Report with Brett Bayer. I'll be on the panel in the 6 p.m. hour Eastern time. You can tune in live, set your DVRs. Back here tomorrow as we get closer to that Christmas party that I mentioned this weekend. Producer Christine, against my better judgment, is in fact invited Actually, the whole team is invited. She has a thousand questions for me. She keeps wanting to do it all week, entire segments about it. I said, no, we can do it Thursday. We can do it Friday. That's the max. So brace yourself for tomorrow. Back here, same time, same place. It's the Guy Benson Show. Have a great night. to be part of the conversation with me brian kilmeade i'll talk about the biggest stories of the day and get your take along with some of the biggest newsmakers around listen live on the fox news app or get the podcast at briankilmeadeshow.com listen to the all-new brett bear podcast featuring common ground in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle along with all your brett bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.